Good morning. Um, I just wanted to start by saying coffee is coming. Um, <laughs> I know many people have gone over there. We're so sorry. I'm so happy that everyone showed up. So <laughs> um, today's scripture reading is Song of Songs 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. For his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughter of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountain, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, for behold, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadow flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Thank you, Jasmine. Church, if you haven't already, please uh, meet us, meet me in the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, chapter 2 will be our primary text today. My name's Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we're continuing to explore this song or this poem uh, that King Solomon wrote back in the day. And one of the prevailing themes of uh, not only the scriptures, but in particular, what is presumed in this, in this song is that everyone has a sexuality. Uh, we're made this way. In, in modern consciousness, in the way that we conceive of sexuality, it, it begins with discovery. It begins with asking questions and searching out yourself. But according to the Bible, sexuality starts with design. God, in essence, could have made human beings however he wanted to. And yet he chose to give us physical bodies with particular features and characteristics. When we look back at the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1, we see in Genesis 1 verse 27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so in this sort of threefold creative announcement that, that God brings to the creation narrative, we're told that humanity, unlike the rest of creation, bears the image of of God. God is our creator, and like anything that anyone makes, we bear the qualities and likeness of the one who made us. We look like him. We look like our father. And part of that reflection, we're told, is embodied in our sexuality. 
God says male and female, he created them. Now, there are two accounts of creation that we find uh, in Genesis. The first is this broad, and perhaps the most famous, Genesis chapter 1. It, it compiles, or rather retells, all seven days, really the first six days of creation, ending with God's seven day of rest. The second account is more detailed retelling in Genesis chapter 2, and it focuses on the sixth day, the day that God made people. So Adam, the male, was formed from the dust of the ground by the breath of God. Eve, the female, God made from Adam and for Adam. Now, this doesn't happen in immediate succession. There's sort of like this gap. There's this gap almost comically between Adam's creation and Eve's creation. Now, imagine with me, before Eve is created, Adam is there. God looks at him. Imagine this, and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, it might at first seem like God made some mistake, like, like something is wrong, or he didn't expect this to happen. And he looks at Adam and goes, that's bad, right? I better keep, keep working, right? This is not, though, about God discovering something. This is about God teaching us something. Without women, creation is incomplete. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? Without community, his design is unfinished. Isolation, my brothers and sisters, was never God's vision. And so, Adam looks over all of creation. We're told he looks over the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. But none, Moses records, none is a helper fit for him. Nothing else fits. Nothing else is just right. That's when God puts the man to sleep. He takes out one of his ribs and he makes the woman And when God brings Eve to Adam, he celebrates. Perhaps you've heard this before. Adam really begins to spit a rhyme, if you please. He says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the narrator continues, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Male, female, man, woman, two very different beings, yet made for each other. And in fact, made to reflect God's image together. And in their physical union, two bodies, even composed, were told, a single flesh. And most profoundly, to our modern ears, there was no shame. There was no shame in their union. There was no shame in their nakedness. That's what we see unfolding today as we behold these two beloveds in the Song of Songs. As we learned last week about love, what we'll learn today about sexuality is that sexuality is for us, but it's not about us. Our sexuality is meant to shape the way we see ourselves and to see other people in friendship and pleasure and wisdom and community, procreation, and so much more. But ultimately, our sexuality tells God's story not ours. Or as uh, author Deborah Hirsch explains, our explicit desire for one another reveals our implicit desire for God himself. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we embody the image of God without shame together, and how that tells us and the world the truth about who God is. So here's how we'll organize our time as we walk through the Song of Songs chapter 2 
As before and throughout this series, our structure will remain about the same. We'll look at the design of sexuality, the distortion of sexuality, and then thirdly, the healing of our sexuality. So we'll look at the design, the distortion, and then the healing. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, there are a lot of things that we explore in your word that are easy sort of cognitive practices or exercises where it's just thinking. To be sure, that's never the fullness of worshiping you, and yet some ideas are easy to just keep in our heads. This one is not one of them. This is about our souls. This is about our hearts. This is about our bodies. And so from jump, we feel vulnerable. I know I do. And so, Father, I pray that as you're so good at doing, whatever you expose, would you also clothe? Whatever you reveal, would you heal? Would you help us to trust that you have charted out a design for our good, in fact, so that creation would be called very good? And so, Father, I pray for my sisters and my brothers that as we hear things perhaps that we've not heard before or don't like or disagree with or even find great joy in, would you help us to neither build walls nor presumptions? And would your word penetrate the deep recesses of our hearts because we all need healing as it relates to our sexuality. And so I pray for the myriad of different stories, Father, that you've brought to mind, to my mind, and will no doubt bring to the hearts and minds of these my friends and my brothers and sisters. And so we thank you, Father, that your word is always for our good. Your word is true and it is beautiful and it brings flourishing and joy. So we are eager to experience that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've said, and the title of the book uh, (laughs) gives away, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is a song. And King Solomon wrote this uh, in the 10th century BC, and it's all about his courtship, his courtship with his wife, his love story, if you will. Unlike anywhere in the Bible, Solomon's words, they're sensual, they're descriptive, and they seem unhindered, and perhaps it makes us very uncomfortable. And we might wonder, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? Well, Rabbi Aquiba thought that in his Mishnah, he said, all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Now, that sounds crazy. That sounds like of all the writings, this is the one that you want to rise to the top? How could he say that? How could he say that a book that barely mentions God and that talks about sex in such carnality, how could this be the holy of holies? this book is holy because the love contained within it is meant to point us to a love of loves. It's always lifting us up. It's intended to give us an honest yet joyful ideal of romantic and sexual union as a pathway, if you will, of knowing ourselves and of knowing God better. Our sexuality teaches us, in other words, God's design for humanity, yet every time you get clearer on your design, you see God better. Whenever we understand ourselves better, we get to know God better. And so ultimately, this is about him. It's about seeing. It's about knowing. And this woman, she sees herself really well. She's honest and grounded. Look at verse 1. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She's talking about herself. And if we're not careful, we may read our cultural lens or through our cultural lens onto this one. After all, a rose is pretty special. I mean, it's like the flower of flowers, right? I mean, this is like the chief flower. 
But a rose in Solomon's day was probably more akin to a tulip or hibiscus, which might be your favorite. And so you're like, that is actually the best rose ever. But this really isn't about that. It's not even a rose. And Sharon was a coastal plain with little significance, biblically speaking. Metaphorically, flowers in general, and lilies in particular, are representative of girls or of women. And so what the bride is saying is that she's one of many. She's not special. She's one of many flowers, one of many women. She sees herself with dignity as a flower, but not with distinctiveness. She's of the valley. But then the man speaks. Look at verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. This dude's like, nah, you're not one of many. You are one of one. You're a flower amidst thorns. Solid comeback. Well done, dude. That's, that's excellent. <laughs> that is a very good comeback when your bride is wondering if she stands out. You're like, yes, you do, baby. Now, we shouldn't suppose he's demeaning other women. Rather, as a man enveloped in the affection of his soon-to-be bride, he's, he's using hyperbole to communicate his exclusive affection for his beloved. Scholar Richard Hess explains that he has eyes for her alone, not for anyone else. See, while she sees herself humbly, he sees her uniquely. She sees herself as a woman in a community of worthiness, yet equality. He sees her as totally set apart. So who's right? Well, of course, they both are. But why? Why are they both correct? And what does this have to do with our sexuality? Well, if you notice from the creation story, Eve is called Adam's helper. And they're also naked without shame. And both of these realities bear witness to our nature, specifically our sexuality. You see, the idea of helper has often been interpreted as this sort of diminutive term, casting women in a merely supporting role to men. It's been used throughout history, particular within the church. She's just a helper, not a leader, not an initiator, not an authority. However, when we follow the usage and evolution of this word throughout the Old Testament, it has much richer meaning than we might at first suppose. In Hebrew, it's the word ezer. It bears the sense of aid and support, but most of the time it is used to describe God, not women. Moses spoke of God as his helper, his ezer, for saving him from Pharaoh in Exodus 18. He says, the God of my fathers was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. King David also celebrated in Psalm 54, behold, God is my helper, my ezer. The Lord is my, the upholder of my life. See, God wasn't a supporting David in some like accent to his otherwise full and meaningful life. David was clinging to his helper, his ezer, for his life. Perhaps most profoundly, the idea of helper is carried on into the New Testament by Jesus who tells us, the helper in John 14, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. God is our helper. And if God is our ezer, our helper, our sustainer, upholder, rescuer, reminder of all that Jesus has taught, then helper isn't some subservient calling. It's a deeply feminine way of demonstrating the image of God and relating to the world. It's a role in a designed partnership that embodies elements of God's image that man cannot possibly embody and reflect on his own. This shapes what Joyce Huger dubbed 
back in 1985 as social sexuality. And in her book, Sexual Character, Marvadon expounds on Huguet's work when she says, our social sexuality is comprised of all aspects of our being that are distinct from feelings, attitudes, behaviors related or leading to genital union. What she's saying. Sexual, or rather, social sexuality is our embrace of being a man or a woman and enjoying life with other men and women without intercourse or romantic attraction being central to our relational dynamic and interactions. Now, this might seem like some trite condescension to cultural stereotypes, but that's not what's going on at all. Social sexuality is an understanding that we belong together, that we embody God's image together because we were designed for each other. In a word, it's intimacy. But it's intimacy without sex. And, and I'd like to suggest to you today and work through this together, we don't really have a concept in our culture of intimacy without sex. See, when the Bride of Song of Solomon says that she's a lily of the fields, she's speaking through her social sexuality. Her worth, identity, connection as a woman with other people, other women in this case, She's interconnected, she's known, and she knows others. But there's another kind of intimacy, isn't there? The bride isn't just one of many, she's one of one. Eve isn't just a helper, she's naked and without shame. So while there is divine and meaningful intimacy that comes without sex, there's another aspect of human intimacy that comes with sex. See, the bride continues to delight in the anticipation of what Huguet calls genital sexuality. Look at verses 3 through 6 as the bride continues. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. So what's she do? She's reciprocating the man's affection. See, to her, he's one of one too. He's an apple, did you notice? An apple tree amongst trees of the forest. She anticipates even physical embrace, longing to enjoy his touch, but it's not some over-sexualized experience. Notice, she imagines entering into his home to enjoy some wine. This is his banqueting table, his banqueting house. Any house where there's wine is actually the definition of that, which is like, that's the house I want to be in. That's the place to go. And she says, in that space, his banner over me is love. Now, if you grew up in the church, you remember a song. I thought that was about God. This is the only place this shows up, and it's talking about romantic genital union. So that's what you've been singing for years in youth camp. You're welcome. What's going on? This means his intentions for her are holistic. His banner, his motivation is what that word means, is for sexual intimacy, physical contact, and enjoyment and love, but not conquest, not consumption, not just momentary pleasure. This is him wanting to give him his whole self to her and her wanting to give her whole self to him. She longs for this genital union to the point where she's feeling sick, she says. She's got it bad, which is good. Why? Because she no longer feels any shame. Remember, we looked at this in the previous chapter. She's walked through shame. So when Adam and Eve were created, they enjoyed an intimacy that displayed the image of God together. 
That's where we get the idea of helper. That's social sexuality. And when their bodies were joined in physical union, they enjoyed an intimacy of two becoming one. That's unique to genital sexuality. So when we conceive of the design of sexuality, we are holding these two things in tension, that our sexuality is for us, but it is not about us, designed by God to point us to Him. But regretfully, though God's design of sex, through God's design of sexuality is clear in the Scriptures, it has been severely distorted. And the woman actually knows this. We get, we get a, a whisper of this, if you will. That's why as she's raptured in her love, in her love story, on to marriage and to genital union, she shares a warning with her girlfriends. Look at verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's cautioning them. She's cautioning them to not arouse love until it's time. She repeats this exact counsel two more times. So three times in the Song of Songs, she's saying, y'all need to wait. She wants them to make a promise. Specifically, she encourages them to vow not to have sex until they're married. Her warning is eventually calcified into the New Testament's sexual ethic. In his book, The Seven Myths of Singleness, author Sam Albury offers us three aspects, if you will, three primary aspects of the New Testament's teaching on genital sexuality. Essentially, he's answering the question, how and why ought we not arouse love until it's time? First, Albury observes that genital sexual union or genital sex outside of marriage is sinful. Secondly, sexual sin includes not just physical act, but our thoughts and our attitudes too. Thirdly, marriage is between a man and a woman for life, and the godly alternative is to be celibate. Now, for some of us, this not only sounds archaic, it sounds draconian. It sounds harmful. In fact, to our modern ears, lifelong celibacy and reserving genital expression, sexual expression for marriage seems like cruel and unusual punishment. It feels dehumanizing, doesn't it? After all, why should anyone be denied the experience of sexual intimacy and romantic love? Especially if that desire is intense and persistent. It's in their bodies. It's in their hearts. Or if a person believes satisfying a particular inclination is going to make them happy, who is anyone else to say what is good and right for them? See, our natural distaste and resistance to this idea begins to expose the distortion of the design, the distortion with which we see our sexuality. See, ultimately what you and I have been led to believe is that to have a whole and meaningful life, we must be free to experience genital sexuality when and however we desire. That genital intimacy is necessary, in other words, for experiencing our full humanity. Therefore, everyone deserves to experience that full humanity through genital intimacy. But in response to this presumption, Albury makes a helpful connection with the life of Jesus. There is no evidence, no credible evidence, that Jesus pursued or ever experienced genital sexual intimacy. So Aubrey explains, to say that it is dehumanizing to be celibate is to dehumanize Christ, to deny that he came fully in the flesh and that his humanity was a real one. You see, Jesus didn't just simply bear the image of God or bear his likeness. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, you and I bear God's image. Jesus is 
God's image. That is that Jesus is the most human being ever. Therefore, romantic relationships and genital gratification must never be required in our full idea of what it means to be a human being. See, the distortion of sexuality is really ultimately a distortion of intimacy. See, the bride knows her friends are longing for intimacy. They desire it. And watching your friend fall in love and get married, it can be awful. It can be really frustrating. It can really challenge your friendship. In fact, one of the great things the church has done is to essentially communicate, once you get married, you better get rid of all your single friends because they don't understand you anymore. Because now you're an alien, right? Now they have no idea how to relate to you. See, this is part of the distortion. See, the bride knows that her friends are longing for this, and watching her fall in love and getting married naturally tempts them to what? They want to hurry up the process. Considering this view, scholar Temper Longman explains that we should learn the same lesson that the bride is giving her girlfriends. Wait for love to blossom, and don't try to stimulate it artificially. This is the temptation. That's the distortion. Instead of allowing God's perfect design to satisfy our longings, and in many respects allow some longings to remain unsatisfied, as all of us experience, with others and himself appropriately, we're tempted to stimulate that intimacy artificially. We do this inside and outside of Christian community. Both distortions, though, cause us to misuse the beauty and meaning of human sexuality. And so let's look at both of those really quickly. See, in the church, we try to artificially stimulate intimacy through marital status. And so, in most religious settings, marriage is revealed, or revered rather, not as one of two ways men and women are meant to bear witness to God's image, but as, rather as a defining marker of Christian maturity and sexual gratification. In other words, if you become mature, then God will reward you with marriage and sex. You, we may not say it outright. This is kind of how we shape community, though. Are you marryable? Have you done your work? Because as soon as you do your work, God will do his... I mean, all of this kind of BS. I almost said it. All of this kind of stuff. All sexuality, then, what does it become? Therefore, great majority of our notion about intimacy itself is reserved for marriage. That intimacy is dangerous outside of marriage. But in marriage, it's really good. So then marriage, what does it become? Our sexual savior. Our sexual savior. In the broader culture, we try to stimulate intimacy through self-exploration and experience. And so marriage is not only not esteemed, but we sort of belittle it as just like a piece of paper, right? And maybe you wonder about this. It's literally just a piece of paper. Who cares? Sex then and satisfying sexual desires become the prescribed pathway for meaningful personal discovery, fulfillment, and connection. In other words, our genital sexuality even becomes our identity. The act of sex and romantic emotion become ultimate. This is why every single movie has something to do with sex. Everything. We actually are shocked when it doesn't happen. These two distortions reshape our view of ourselves and of each other. We don't see each other rightly because of these distortions. We don't see ourselves correctly because of these distortions. And it reshapes our view of intimacy. Again, Marva Dawn warns, we must understand that the desperation in our society for intimacy often leads to genital experimentation by those who truly instead desire social affection. To put it bluntly, we go to sex when really what we're looking for is a friend. Even when we're married. 
We need a good conversation to stir up appropriate affection for one another. Instead, it's like, let's just try something different in the bedroom and see if we can fix our marriage. We join our bodies when really what we want is for someone to see our heart, someone to connect with our soul. In this distorted climate, I think what we begin to do is that we presume upon same-sex and opposite-sex connections. For instance, intimacy between two men is perceived as romantic attraction immediately. A woman and man who enjoy each other's company, we assume they want to have sex with each other or they already have. We have no category, if you will, in both contexts for a social sexuality that is meant to be not only an enjoyment of intimacy or of friendship, but meant to demonstrate the gospel to the world. We presume all intimacy is about sex and all sexuality is about us. Church, that's a distortion that's broken and it needs healing. So our sexuality is for us, but it's not about us. Notice how the couple enjoys coming together now, starting in verse 8, but there's this room that's left for more to be desired. Verse 8 and following, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time is singing, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle doves is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. She concludes, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. This is a serious courtship. It's exposing. It's vulnerable. The woman has already dealt and faced some of her worst fears and deepest self-consciousness. But it's also really fun. It's also really playful. It's springtime, and this wonderful picture, the season of fresh blossom and romance, begins to capture the imagination. And in fact, they start catching foxes, which might seem odd, except back in the day, this was how children played. I can't imagine that. I don't let my kids go outside without me. These dudes are catching wild animals, right? Not only that, but their romance is unfulfilled. There's something left to be desired. See, the woman is not fully accessible, not fully known, if you will. She's like a dove, he says, in the cleft of the rock. And her beloved asks, let me see you. Let me see your face. It's full of goodness, enjoyment, but not completely self-satisfying. See, there is a richness to it, yet it is unfulfilled intimacy. Now, when we talk about intimacy, what are we talking about? What is intimacy? For our time together, I'd like to suggest that intimacy is safety and vulnerability. Intimacy is safety and vulnerability. See, Eve can only be Adam's helper if he allows her to see his need. 
if he allows her to see his need for help, his weaknesses, his vulnerability. Equally, this partnership can only be fulfilled if Eve, once she sees Adam's weakness, does not exploit his vulnerability for her selfish advantage. Are you with me? To be truly intimate in their social sexuality, there needs to be safety in vulnerability. We have to know each other, and we have to take care of each other. In the same way, Adam and Eve can only be one flesh to the degree that they're vulnerable, they're both naked, and honor their nakedness. There's no shame. There needs to be safety and vulnerability for genital oneness to be fully embodied. See, when we artificially stimulate intimacy, what we're doing is we're operating out of fear. We're hedging our bets. We're attempting to achieve some measure of safety without the risk of vulnerability or some level of vulnerability without losing our safety. This speaks to our most profound need. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Pastor Tim Keller begins to use this language of love and knowledge. And he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us from any difficulty life can throw at us. See, within appropriate and healthy boundaries of friendship, men and women must learn to know and love each other. That's the intimacy of social sexuality. It's safety and vulnerability. Within appropriate and healthy boundaries of marriage, husbands and wives must learn to know and love each other. That's genital sexuality, safety, and vulnerability. However, and perhaps you've been thinking about this the entire morning, we have not been known and loved like this. We have not known and loved each other like this, have we? See, each of us could share stories of the wounds that we have from when a family member exploited our vulnerability, or a friend used our weakness for their advantage, or in a marriage, we took compromise to gamifying who got to make what decision and who got to do what as a way of protecting ourselves. We have relationships, family, friendships, marriages in which we remain too guarded because we've been so hurt and we are so scared that we don't know what to do, what it is to have authentic and meaningful connection. We just want to stay safe. In other words, we've been loved but not fully known. We've been known but not fully loved. We've been vulnerable, but we haven't been safe. We felt safe, but we haven't been vulnerable. This is why we need healing in our sexuality. Because we had a lot of pain, church. one of the things that we need to do is we need to confess that. We need to share that. That's really hard because that means we have to be vulnerable. Some of the things that we need to do first then is admit how we have been culpable and negligent in a spirituality and a sexuality that has done way more harm than good. We need healing. See, when our sexuality is all about us, and all for us, we all get hurt. This is why it's such good news 
that our sexuality points to someone else. See, our sexuality points us to Jesus Christ, the image of God, the most human being. Why is this such good news? Because only in Christ are you fully known and fully loved. Only in Him are we utterly vulnerable and totally safe. 1 John 1 tells us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You see that? We are in the light, completely vulnerable but we have fellowship with each other and we are cleansed. We are totally safe. This means no matter how good of friendships you have experienced, Jesus is a better and truer friend. This means no matter how devastating and hurtful a friendship has been, Jesus understands your pain because he has been a friend who has been mistreated. This means no matter how good your marriage is, Jesus is a truer and better spouse This means no matter how devastating your marriage has been, Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always see you. I will always want you because you are mine. This is our helper. This is our real Ezra, the one who truly heals us because of this divine intimacy is the only kind of intimacy that we don't have to build walls to protect ourselves because whatever he exposes, he heals right away. He has utterly, he is utterly safe. Because you see, Jesus was the only one who was completely safe in the halls of heaven forever, enjoying complete and full intimacy with the Father and the Spirit, and he left that safety to be vulnerable with you and me. He left all of that. He was utterly safe with his Father and became vulnerable to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, God's sexual ethic is only cruel if sex is all about us and if genital sexuality is the only kind of sexuality that fosters intimacy with one another and with God. But in his divine wisdom and grace, our sexuality is for us, but it's not about us. The image of God then is meant to be enjoyed through intimacy, through social and genital sexuality, both of which point us to Christ the one our hearts and our bodies are really longing for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We made a mess of something that is beautiful and true. And we also ask for your healing because we bear the wounds of a distorted sexuality. We have been hurt We are hurt. We are hurting. And we're scared even to navigate this conversation because anytime we try to step into the light, it burns us. And so, Father, it's in the middle of this cluster that we call out to you. It's not going to be because church in the square does it right, it's not going to be because we find the right spouse. It's not going to be because we have the greatest sex life that anyone has ever had. It's going to be because you redeem all things. It's going to be through the person and work of Jesus Christ that we know what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to enjoy a social sexuality that demonstrates your image, what it means to enjoy a genital sexuality 
that speaks to your oneness. So Father, forgive us, heal us, help us, so that we might more and more become the people that tell the truth to the world about who you are. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.